0: You're listening to XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mary Fabry, clinical psychologist and director of torture treatment services and international training at the Marjorie Kovler Center of Heartland Alliance. Today we're going to be discussing torture and its medical implication. Thank you, Dr. Fabry, for joining us. Could you tell me a little bit about the mission statement of the Marjorie Kovler Center in Chicago?
1: We're a treatment center for torture survivors, and it's our mission to provide comprehensive services to individuals and their families who have suffered torture abroad. So comprehensive services means medical care, mental health care, and social services.
0: Are these mainly refugees and immigrants
1: There are immigrants and refugees in our population, but it's predominantly those seeking political asylum in the United States.
0: Could you describe torture in the way that you use it in the clinic?
1: We use the United Nations definition of torture, which involves the cruel and inhumane treatment afflicting pain and suffering on another individual for the purposes of soliciting information or confession For punishment or for controlling a population. It's under the color of law. It can be perpetrated by the government or by a group affiliated with the government or a group the government can't control, like a guerrilla group.
0: What countries do your clients come from?
1: All over. Last year, we saw people from 47 different countries. It's really a global problem. Predominantly right now, though, we are seeing people from the continent of Africa.
0: When a client comes to you, what are the services that you provide and that they need?
1: Initially, we do a screening, and that's just to make sure that someone's eligible for our program services. And then we conduct an assessment, an intake assessment. And that takes, we spend anywhere from six to eight hours conducting that assessment. So it's over time, multiple visits, and document a thorough history of pre-torture, torture experience and what's going on right now. And after that, since we utilize a huge network of volunteers here in Chicago, essentially what we try and do is sit with people and find out what do they need and then try and find someone to do it for them that will donate their services. What are
0: the emotional implications of the torture and the legacy that these clients of yours have to go through?
1: You know, the physical scars heal for the most part, individuals really describe that the psychological consequences stay with them for a lifetime. They may subside or improve, but the psychological consequences really stay with the person their entire life. I think the sleep disturbances are the most pervasive, you know, not being able to fall asleep or not being able to remain asleep, nightmares, the intrusive thoughts and memories that come at night. Those are all issues that disrupt one's life, as well as the anxiety that goes on, the startle reaction. I remember learning how fireworks, which we enjoy, really remind people of missiles and bombs and don't understand why we do this horrible thing, create these sounds which frighten them, are uniforms. If you think about torture in military states, that the perpetrators are often military or police, and they have uniforms on. And if you look at our society, everyone's wearing uniforms. Security wears uniforms. Our police wear uniforms. Our bus drivers wear uniforms. Those can be reminders.
0: So these images continue to intrude on their lives. They continue forever.
1: There's definitely improvement. But what we've seen is that, you know, people do resume normal, productive lives. They work and get married and, you know, raise their families. But under stress, whether it's real, something stressful really happens, or if it's perceived as stressful, those symptoms can flare up again.
0: Have you had any experience in actually going to Rwanda and seeing the same kind of phenomena happening there?
1: At this point in time, we're, we're working internationally. You know, I think there's a sense of responsibility. If you've gained a body of knowledge, you want to be able to help promote that and disseminate it in other countries. So we've worked in Guatemala, we've worked in Haiti, and I'm currently working with a non-governmental organization called WEACT, Women's Equity for Access to Care and Treatment in Rwanda. It's an HIV program, which is focusing on assisting women and their children. Many of the women were raped during the genocide and may have contracted the HIV at that time. But the reality is, is that they are genocide survivors, and that was a traumatic experience. In Rwanda, it's called the slow genocide, that the death didn't happen then, but it will happen, and their children will be infected, and so it goes on for generations.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today, my guest is Dr. Mary Fabry, director of the Marjorie Kovler Center. You say that you see women who are HIV positive. Do you also see teenage girls who are HIV positive as a product of the rape that went on during Rwanda?
1: Well, we definitely do see teens who are HIV positive. The genocide was 13 years ago. So they would have been children if, you know, and it's hard to know. I can't say conclusively.
0: I was just thinking that these children never had a childhood and that, again, The mental health problems of these teenagers that you're seeing must also be a a tremendous problem.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. In Rwanda, there is this phenomenon of teens who were young children during the genocide who don't have verbal memory of what they witnessed, having severe behavior problems in school. I've done some consulting there with trauma counselors And one of the things they've talked to me about is that these young teens will suddenly have outbursts of disruptive behavior in the classroom where they'll start yelling or they'll cry or they'll get into arguments, be very challenging and provocative, and they don't understand why. They don't know where it came from. It makes sense if you think about if you were an infant, and people have described this of rescuing infants were suckling on their dead mother's breasts, who had her head and arms cut off with machetes. There were children rescued from the aftermath of the genocide that survived. And they have that memory held in this at the sensate level of their body.
0: So there must be a lot of orphans in Rwanda.
1: A lot of orphans. You know, it's not unusual. It's In fact, it's common that when you meet a family, there's their biological children and one or two orphans who they've taken in.
0: That's true of Rwandan culture, that they embrace orphans.
1: Right. They do take care of the orphans.
0: And there's also, I would imagine, a lot of widows. I know there's organizations of widows in Rwanda. Do they also help raise the orphans that are there?
1: I've definitely met widows who have lost their own children and they're raising orphans.
0: Has your experience in Chicago been? been able to benefit you when you go to Rwanda.
1: Absolutely. I think having an understanding of consequences of severe trauma and how it impacts life or one's ability to interact in life, have interpersonal relationships, is helpful when we're going to a country that's a post-conflict society. I think there are some significant differences, though, that really need to be attended to. If we think about someone who's fled torture and is come to live in Chicago, they're in exile and they've left everything behind. They've left their family, their status, their professions. Very few people who go into exile reclaim what they had. Their life is altered in very significant ways. But for those people who didn't leave, their life is altered, too, <laughs> in very profound ways. And someone here may get up and walk out, and all the sights and sounds and smells are new and different, and that can be disorienting. If you stay and you get up, all the sights and sounds and smells can be reminders of what happened, especially in places like Rwanda where perpetrators are still walking the street or they're being released I've met many women who have encountered the person who raped them or the person who they witnessed slaughter their family walking down the street and have seen that result in a crisis and a psychological deterioration from when I first met them because they hadn't seen them before.
0: So they would relapse. Right, right. Their defenses that they're trying to build up. Right. Shattered. Shattered.
1: Shattered. Right. They don't feel safe. You know, and if you look at what is needed for someone to heal from torture, the very first thing is safety.
0: You know, you hear always this term broken bodies, shattered minds. And I think you're describing it. Right. What do you think will happen with Darfur? Do you think there's going to be a repeat of the same type of psychiatric problems that, that we're that we seeing.
1: First of all, it's been going on a long time. You know, people don't realize how long. It's come into our awareness in 2003. But the roots of that conflict go back 20 years further. And this kind of targeting has been going on of women and children and displacement and terror and torture and rape and severe conditions of deprivation. Yeah, I don't see how anyone can not have that affect their lives. I often have a discussion with my colleagues on, is it a disorder or not, though? How would any of us respond to these acts of terror and and horror if they were perpetrated against us? They create changes and alterations in a person's ability to have interpersonal relationships, an act of urban violence, or if it's the battlefield against civilians. Rape profoundly affects women and their ability to feel safe in the world and to be intimate.
0: We've talked about the failure of a state to protect its citizens. We've talked about the silence of the state, the indifference, the lack of due diligence in these countries, what about the rest of the world? Are they also silent? Are they also indifferent?
1: It raises a lot of questions when we think about complicity. Do we have a responsibility to intervene? How long do we listen to news reports with the thousands and thousands being harmed? And what is that doing to our psyche knowing that this terrible thing is happening and we're not doing anything to stop it? And what kind of message is that sending to our children who learn about this in school if they don't see responsible adults acting responsibly? What can the listeners
0: to this program do about this situation?
1: To become informed. It's very interesting to me that as we see individuals come to the United States, they are amazed at how inadequate our news is that we do not provide information about the rest of the world. So I think it becomes our own responsibility to become informed about international events.
0: I want to thank Dr. Mary Fabry, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing torture and its medical implications on a global health problem. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at
1: reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.